right, <clears throat> good morning and good to be with you. If you're visiting, really glad you're here. We're in a series right now in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount from a mountain, that's the name, in the uh, Gospel of Matthew chapters 5 through 7. And this is where uh, he instills the, the values and the practices that will mark and characterize the people who belong to the kingdom of God. This is, here's, here's what it means to be a Christian according to Jesus. Here's what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of God according to Jesus. The Sermon on the Mount is the answer to those questions. And, and it feels like the, what he tells us and the way he tells us to live and what these values are, it, it's so upside down compared to uh, the, the wisdom of the world and the way that most people would naturally be living. Last week we got into the Beatitudes where Jesus teaches, first of all, God does want you to be happy, right? He says, blessed is this, and blessed are people who this, and this, and this. That word means happy. This is the way to have the, the maximum amount of happiness in your life that God desires for you, and the way that you get to experience that is living aligned with God's will for your life, and so that looks like things like, uh, like being, being poor in spirit, and mourning, and being meek, and, and uh, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, being merciful, pure in heart, uh, peacemakers, to, to endure persecution for his sake. Things that we would maybe not naturally associate with happiness, and yet Jesus says because of who he is and what he gives to us through the gospel, the good news about salvation in him, it changes these things so they become this great source of happiness in our lives, and these are the things that he works into us. Uh, now, moving on from that, from the Beatitudes, we're just going to read a few verses today, and I actually want to read them all at once on the front end, because it's not much, and I just want to get it in front of us and, and into our heads uh, before we spend the rest of our time uh, working through them and, and seeing what does this mean. So here we go, Matthew 5, starting in verse 13, Jesus says this, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Before we really start unpacking and explaining everything that Jesus says there, I want to spend a little time digging into an idea that is present within what Jesus is talking about. And so just start with a question. Um, two people looking at a glass of water. It's half filled. One person says it's half full. The other person says it's half empty. Who's right? It's half empty, right? We all know it. We all know it. If you think it's half full your life is just better than the rest of ours, and, like, just try not to rub it in. Um, you know, in a technical sense, that they'd both be correct at identifying that, but, but what's the right way to feel about it? What's the right perspective to have on it? Um, let me expand on that just for a minute. Um, do, you think, do you think that most people today, either in general or most people that you know, are most people optimistic or pessimistic? Like, are most people pretty hopeful about the future, that things are going to get better, or do they feel like things aren't great, and they're not going to get better, they're pretty much only going to get worse? 
I think most people are like the glass half empty. Like right now, the majority seems to be this kind of pessimistic attitude. Um, maybe you disagree with me and you have, you know, you live in circles that are doing much better than the rest of us. But for the most part, it seems like uh, pessimism is the, the dominant attitude. And this is just like in everything, right? And especially if, if you look in the news at all, like if you consume any sort of news medium, um, housing prices, inflation, pollution, and wars, and recession, and shootings, and loneliness, and all these depressing, awful things that are always talked about, and even like our ability to be civil with one another, it seems like it's gone. Like we can't just talk, it like devolves into like getting angry with each other, no one wants to like truly listen and understand what, what the other person's saying. Um, pessimism seems pretty dominant. Uh, here, here's another follow-up question. Do you think pessimism has always been the dominant attitude? If you know your history, actually, the answer is no. Um, if, uh, if you've ever heard, like, in your history classes, or, you know, I don't know where you learn this stuff, but uh, around the founding of our country, there's a, a philosophy that was really taking root and uh, very influential called the Enlightenment and Enlightenment thinking. And it continued for, you know, over 100 years from the time of our nation's founding uh, for, for about 100 years. To summarize the Enlightenment, uh, it was the thought that um, mankind can achieve perfectibility. You know, that as we, as we grow in knowledge and we advance in civilization, things are just going to improve and improve and improve and get better and better and better and essentially it is inevitable that we will achieve kind of an ideal world where we're going to know so much and we're going to advance so much there's not going to be any need for wars or fighting and like we're going to have such access to knowledge that we can just all arrive at the truth together pretty optimistic right it hasn't exactly played out that way um, and we have improved, like we, our technological advancements and healthcare advancements and all kinds of things have been, have been really great. But as we've improved in those things, like we have, um, we have like almost unlimited knowledge, most of us, in our pockets right now. Like nearly unlimited knowledge available almost anywhere at almost any time, and yet... How many people have you encountered on the internet who are just not that smart? You know, or how many people have you encountered on the internet or who, like, be, even with everything the internet enables us to do, they're still lonely. Like, it allows you to connect with anyone anywhere in the world, but, like, we're just, we're not really that deeply connected. Um, you know, we have access to all this knowledge, but then we just fight about it and fight about which thing is true and which thing is not. Right, we have all, it hasn't led to greater peace. People are just angrier all the time. What's interesting, uh, so here's, here's like an interesting, in, in the 1850s, there was a, a novel written called Coral Island, and the premise of the novel is there's a shipwreck, and like these kids get shipwrecked on this island, and what they do for the novel is they, like, rebuild human society. And uh, so they all, like, work together and improve things and make things better and better, and, like, that's basically it. And it's very enlightenment. It's very optimistic that, like, oh, yeah, you just get dumped on an island and, uh, you know, take what you know and everything's going to be great. 
In the 1960s, there was a different novel written uh, called Lord of the Flies. I don't know if you know it, uh, if anyone ever made you read it in high school, but it's the same premise, shipwreck, kids on an island, and uh, the result is the world's first Hunger Games. Like, they just hunt each other down and become animals. Um, very, very different outlook within a hundred years. And that is pretty reflective of the way that broader society has been thinking. Um, we're pretty cynical. And, and I'm not trying to be critical here about our cynicism, because I think there is, in many cases, reason for it, uh, reason that we've become cynical. Like, we're cynical about our politicians, because it seems like they're all bought and paid for by interests, and, uh, you know, they, they, they don't follow through on the promises that they make. Uh, we're, we're cynical about healthcare industry, even though there are great people that work in it and there are great advancements in it, as soon as you have to deal with like hospital billing and insurance and, uh, and you know, pharmaceuticals, like it just feels very unreasonable. And like they're just trying to squeeze you for everything you have. Um, cynical about businesses, like business, you know, like since the pandemic, like the profits have just gone off the charts. Like all these businesses are doing better than they've ever done and with that, the prices are all going up, and it's not like they're doing all these layoffs. It's not like they're, you know, hiring a bunch of people and creating more jobs. It, we get cynical about these things, and, and they've given us reason to be cynical. We get cynical about people. There's this thing called, uh, I don't know if you know it, Facebook Marketplace. Uh, Facebook Marketplace, I don't know what it is about that thing, but I don't trust the people on there any further than I could throw them. It's not very far. Uh, it seems like everyone on Facebook Marketplace has taken the same class on how not to answer the question that you ask and just give like vague cryptic responses where you're never sure, are they actually gonna buy the thing I'm trying to sell? Or like, am, like is it really still there? Like could I actually buy, like whatever it is, it never works out. It's a dark place. Uh, we're, we've become fairly cynical. And like cynicism is tricky because it creates a cycle. Like all it takes is for enough people to be cynical, for, for one of everyone who's kind of feeling the same way to go, you know what, the world really is a terrible place and nothing matters, therefore I'm gonna do what I wanna do and I don't care if it means that I'm treating someone badly or uh, it has you know, terrible consequences, effects on someone else around me and that person does it and the people that are affected by that are only going to grow in their own cynicism. And so it feeds itself and it gets worse and worse and worse. Back to the original question. Glass half empty, glass half full. What's the best way to look at it? Should we be pessimists or should we be optimists? If you're visiting today and you're not a Christian and, you know, I don't know your background, maybe you, you'd grown up in the church and you spent some time away, and now you're, you're re-exploring faith or re-exploring Jesus maybe for the first time and you don't have any experience with the church, um, but if you're, if you're new to Christianity or new to kind of reconnecting with Christianity, uh, it may surprise you to know that Christians do have kind of a unique answer in the balance between pessimist and optimist, where... Um, Christians acknowledge that the world is a difficult place filled with tremendous problems, right? Broken and dark place, and we're very, we can be very um, clear.
clear about it. We don't have to dress it up. We don't have to pretend it's not. But we also believe in a supernatural God who is, I mean, he's everywhere, but he also inhabits this, this place or this realm called the kingdom of God that is the ideal, perfect good that the optimist could only dream of, right? He's, he's actually there, and through Jesus, he's broken into this world, and he's able to break into our lives and our hearts to create real change. Biblical Christianity, it's not, it's not a shallow optimism where we're just, like, naive, and we just think, oh, well, everything's fine, or it's all going to be better. God's going to just take care of everything, and so we don't really have any worries or troubles. Um, I think that we can all look at the Enlightenment and say, like, that was kind of a naive outlook. But biblical Christianity is also not this, like, terminal pessimism that just, like, looks at the darkness and looks at the brokenness and doesn't see any hope for change. Because we don't focus on this, this perfect and impossible-to-achieve ideal, and we don't just focus on the things that are terrible. We focus on the person Jesus Christ. Because in Jesus, the perfect ideal good breaks into our world and becomes real and creates real change. And we, through him and our relationship with him, we can become part of that power that makes change in us and in the people around us and the world around us. Those are... Those are the ideas that are involved in what Jesus teaches here. So three things that Jesus teaches in these verses. Um, one is that the world needs salt and light. The world needs salt and light. And, um, you know, we use salt in sort of a different way than they did back then, where back then it was mainly used as a preservative. They didn't have refrigeration, and so they'd salt their food, and it would prevent it from decay and make it last longer. Um, Light did the same thing then as it does now. Uh, but, but that's it. The, the world needs salt. The world needs light. First thing he's teaching. Second thing, there is salt and light from outside of the world that can uh, illuminate it and preserve it and, and save it. Right? Moving from this ideal perfect good, breaking into the world, the kingdom of God through the person Jesus. Right? He's teaching that in here. And then third... In Jesus, if you, if you have the right kind of relationship with Jesus where he is in you, you are in him, you become the salt and the light that is able to make changes in the world, to, to create this good. Now, if, uh, if, if you are here today and you're not a Christian, very glad that you're here, glad that you're exploring your faith. Uh, I, I do want you to understand that Unless you just completely disassociate yourself and say, I just don't care. Uh, Unless you get to a place where you try to be indifferent and not think about it and not care. um, If you don't embrace the truth that Jesus is trying to give us in these verses, you're always going to be stuck somewhere on this cycle between uh, optimistic hope, I think things could get better, and this crushing pessimism. Uh, things are never going to improve, and you might be bouncing back and forth on that, but you'll never be in a spot where you have any sort of stability, any sort of realism and real hope. 
we need to embrace and understand this truth that Jesus is trying to give us. And so moving through those three points of three things Jesus is trying to teach us. One, the world needs salt and light. Again, in Jesus' context, salt is used as a preservative, really, really beneficial. Keeping food from spoiling, making it last for a really long time. Um, light also incredibly beneficial. The, the lamp that Jesus is referring to here, what it would have looked like is uh, like a cup of oil with a wick on it, and, uh, and that's what they would burn, and that would, would give off light, and I mean, light does the same thing now as it did then, but the world is different now, um, where until like the, the industrial revolution and like really uh, the, the invention of, you know, electricity and the infrastructure for that and light bulbs, the world at night was like a very, very dark place that we don't get to experience. Like we just have light everywhere. We're in a room with no windows and it's light. Uh, we, we have so much light. We have this thing called light pollution where you go outside at night and you can only see like three stars barely on a good night, right? There's, there's so much of it. We are much more unfamiliar with the experience of being in total darkness that most of humanity experienced uh, before the widespread, you know, availability of electric light. Um, you probably still have experienced it, and so where I experience it uh, is, you know, at home at night, if you guys have, like, blackout curtains and you don't do night lights or anything, uh, and you're just in your home, and it's a place that you're in, like, every single day, so you know where stuff is, but it's absolute dark, and you're inching your way forward because it's so disorienting and you don't know how far you are from certain things. And if you're not careful, you're going to bang your knee on the thing, you're going to stub your toe, and it's going to be terrible. Um, the reason Jesus says the world needs salt, the power to preserve it, and the world needs light, which has the, the power to illuminate and help you to know where things are and where you are, just being able to see things accurately, is because when the world is left to itself, it is always going to move in the direction towards greater disorder, disorientation, and disintegration, decay, falling apart. Uh, everything, everything in the world falls apart. And that's just true. It's like there's no arguing with that. That's just what we see in the world. That's what we experience in our lives. Like, you look, at, you look at history, all the nations, the greatest nations that ever existed, the most powerful, biggest, uh, they, they, they're all over. They all ended. And they're all going to end at some point. Like, the United States is not eternal. Like, at some point, it's going to end. At this rate, maybe next year. Um, you know, our, our bodies fall apart. Um, a as you get older, your body starts to break down, and like bodies are amazing. We can last 80, 90, 100 years. Um, but what's kind of sad to realize is how early in the process that breaking down starts to happen. Like I'm 31. That's not that old. But I'm 31, and if I sit cross-legged on the ground for more than five minutes, I, it, it hurts for like half an hour. And, like, I can't stand up. And, and my little two-year-old, she's doing, like, contortionist gymnastics, just smiling at me, rubbing it in, mocking me. She feels great. Uh, she'll get there. Um, you, uh, you can try as hard as you want to prevent the decay happening in your body. It's just not going to work. Like, you can, you can do all the things you're supposed to do, exercise, stretch, eat well, 
rest enough. You can do all these, these right things, um, but eventually your body will break down. Like the death rate is marching forward at 100%. Uh, everything, everything eventually will break down and decay and die. You know, dogs die, cats die, trees die. If you're a parent in here and you put your kids in the kids' ministry today, I think you made a wise decision. Talking a little bit about death. Um, everything, everything eventually dies. Even like really old things that have lived for super long. I think it was in the 60s, this guy cut down a tree and he found out later that it was 5,000 years old. This is the oldest tree that, was ever, that we've ever found that we know for sure, bristlecone pine, uh, bristlecone pine, and he killed it. Uh, and in the 2000s, I think it was 2000, 2006, there's a, a clam that they found and killed. And they found that that one was 507 years old. I don't know how you find out the age of a clam, but they did it. Uh, like, everything dies. And if, it, if it's not dying fast enough, we'll find it and kill it. Right? That's, that's the lesson. Uh, everything breaks down. Uh, and, and it's not just, you know, biological life in the nations. It's, it's social life. It's relationships. So, I mean, how many of you have experienced this for yourself that you've had this friendship or this good relationship and maybe you've kept it for, for so long and then something happens, something changes, maybe you move away, uh, but whatever, it, or life stages are different and you just start drifting further apart. And what once was a great and close friendship is no longer as, um, as, as strong as it once was. Or, or even worse, could be something like you, you had such a long relationship, friendship, or family relationship, and then there's some sort of conflict, and, and it actually ends it. Like, apart from effort and, and real work at it, at your relationships, that's the way they're going to go. If you're not putting effort into it, if you're just being passive in it, it's just going to weaken and weaken until it's no longer there. Marriage. I think marriage is like the best evidence for how relationships tend to break down over time. And um, it's not a confession. I enjoy my marriage very much. Uh, it'd be a weird way to break news. My wife's over there. Uh, but people who've been married for any length of time will tell you marriage can be extremely difficult, right? It can be. And even if it's not extremely difficult, and you do enjoy it, um, all marriages require work. Like, all marriages are going to have problems that need to be addressed and worked on and solved, and if they're not, it's going to make things worse, and, and marriage is like the one, it's the relationship, the only one where you've picked the person that you like the best, that you love the best, and you made a promise in front of God and everyone that you know, and you said, I'm going to love you forever, and I'm going to stick with you, and I'm not going to abandon you. And so, like, this is the person that you love more than anyone else. It's like your favorite person, and with your favorite person, that relationship is hard. They all take work. They all take effort because left to itself, it's always going to lead to decay. Psychologically, like your, your mental state, if you don't put any work into that, if you just kind of leave it and let life happen to you, that's going to decay, right? People get anxiety. People get depression. They carry these, these issues with them. And if you're, not, if you're not doing anything about it, if you're not putting any work into it, 
your happiness is going to suffer. The universe itself is heading for decay, if the scientists are to be believed, right? That the, the universe is expanding, it's infinitely expanding, and they tell us at some point it's going to expand so far, everything's going to be so, so massively far apart that the universe will grow cold. And we don't have to worry about that, because long before that, the sun's going to explode and swallow up the earth and destroy everything on it, and everything that you've ever done, or any mark you ever tried to leave, and no one's going to remember that you ever existed. As I said, I cannot recommend our kids' ministry enough, and uh, I, I hope you make use of it. Um, left to itself, everything, everything falls apart. The world needs, this is what she's saying, the world needs salt and light. If this world is all there is and there's nothing else, it's just the life that we have here and it's the world that we're on, if this is all there is, there, there is no hope and there is no deeper meaning or significance to anything. There's just not. And like everyone who is like, a, who deeply, seriously thinks about this has arrived at that same conclusion. Everyone who's, who's uh, you know, uh, applied themselves to philosophy and thought about it and looked at, at all the data that if this world is all there is and this life is all there is, everything is ultimately meaningless. You don't matter. I don't matter. We'll all be forgotten one day. Nothing will exist that will ever remember that, that we ever existed. That's why Ecclesiastes tells us. Ecclesiastes is is this uh, book of wisdom in the Old Testament. It's like this emo book of wisdom that's just like hopeless. And because it's Solomon looking at like, what if this is all there is? That's kind of like the question he's wrestling with. What if this is all there is? Then, then what does life mean? Or, or what is wise in life if this is all there is? And he says this, uh, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Vanity is emptiness. Emptiness. Meaningless. Nothing. No substance. Nothing lasting. This is what's so strange about people who believe that this life is all we have and this world is all there is, because there are people who, who believe that. Um, but no one who believes that actually lives their lives as if it's, as if it's true. Um, no one actually lives in a way where you truly believe nothing matters. Because if you really think that, if you really think nothing matters, one, you, you're going to have no motivation to do anything. Um, and anything you, you do, uh, you're not going to care about consequences. You're not going to, you're not going to care about um, doing anything that inconveniences yourself. And, and people just don't live that way, right? We do have goals, even small goals, but we have goals and we, we get motivated about certain things and we do things that inconvenience ourselves. And, and we do care about things like leaving our mark on the world and being remembered, even just being remembered by the, by the people that know us. Like those are things that, that people care about and we live as if our life has meaning and significance, even the people who, who would say, you know, ultimately nothing matters. As a strange disconnect for people who deny the, the reality of God, and yet they're living as if there is something more. It's almost like there's something in us that God put there uh, that, that knows and acknowledges the reality that, that there is something more, and that our lives really do have meaning. 
there really is a significance to the way that we're living. Our, our lives actually do matter for something. The best we could possibly do, if this world is all there is, this life is all there is, the, the best wisdom you can live by, according to Solomon, is hedonism. It's just enjoy the moment while you have it, because one day you'll lose it. And, and so you just gotta live for the moment. This is Ecclesiastes 8. He says, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. And to be fair, <clears throat> there are people who live like this. Um, but hedonism tends to burn out pretty quickly. If you're just living for the moment and living for your, your happiness and pleasure in the moment, that tends to be very short-lived and, and very quickly becomes emptiness. And you need greater and greater, you know, stimulation or different things that, because, because it all, you become numb to it. The world needs salt and the world needs light because it's all, it's all moving towards decay. It's all falling apart. And that brings us to the second point that Jesus is teaching us, that there is salt and light from outside the world that can illuminate it and, and preserve it. Um, I mean, everyone lives as if it's there, as if there is this, this real source of, of salt and light and therefore meaning to our existence anyways. But the real answer to where it comes from is from Jesus himself. Now, he doesn't mention himself explicitly in the verses, but he does refer to himself implicitly and his role in this. Because when Jesus says we're the, the light of the world, what's the image of light that he uses? It's a lamp. A lamp doesn't create its own light. Uh, a, all a lamp can do is hold on to the light that's given to it. It's not able to create it itself. It can only hold on to it. Jesus himself is the light of the world, and you only become the light of the world when you receive and hold on to his light. You're lit up by his light. We're not the source. It, it's like, uh, it's like the, the moon doesn't have its own ability to produce light. All it does is reflect the light of the sun. We're not the source and we're not creating it. We're just channeling it and reflecting it. This is the statement Jesus makes about himself in the Gospel of John chapter 8. He says, uh, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Talked about it a little bit before, but like, what, what is it the light actually does? Light allows you to see in the dark. It allows you to see accurately, to see yourself, to see what's around you, to see where you are. Light gives us information that we wouldn't have access to if it weren't for the light. For Jesus to say, I am the light, he's saying that he's able to give us this information, he's able to give us this truth that we can't have apart from him about the darkness that we're living in. Right? Jesus gives us the truth. It also means, when Jesus says, I'm the light, it means he's entirely good. Because there's nothing that he's keeping hidden, there's no lying or deceit, there's no darkness in him, he's all light. And because he's good and because he's the truth, he is the light that can guide us in a dark world. He's, he's the one who shows us the way. That's the more famous thing he says, right? He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. 
And that's true. We believe that's true. Jesus is the way. He's the only way. No one comes to the Father but through him. And I know that there are people, and, and maybe you're one of them or you know one of them. Uh, there, there are people who say, you know, Jesus isn't the only way. Um, everyone has to find their own way. And all the ways are equally valid, and you can't kind of impose your way on anyone else. And people, I think, tend to say that because it makes them feel compassionate and open-minded. But just because it makes you feel that way doesn't mean that's what you are. Um, if, uh, because if you tell a Christian who believes Jesus is the only way and we need to be forgiven by him and he's the only one who can do it, we have to, we have to turn our lives over to Jesus, and you tell a Christian um, that's not true, Jesus is not the only way, and therefore it's wrong for you to evangelize anyone and try to convert anyone and tell them they need to change and believe what you believe uh, because, you know, their path is fine for them and you don't know what their path is. Don't you see that in, in what you're doing, you're trying to convert people to your own way of thinking? And, and in your way of thinking, your way of thinking about, you know, Christianity is um, you can't let Christians understand their Christianity the way Christ tells us to. We have to understand it the way you tell us to. It's not actually necessary for, for Jesus to forgive our sins because there, there's other things we could do. Um, and, and you're not just doing it to Christians, you're doing it to everyone. You're doing it to the Muslims, you're doing it to the Buddhists and the Hindus and, and everyone else. You're trying to convert people into your own kind of perspective on religion and your own perspective on truth, and you're trying to convert people to, you're telling us that we're wrong, and, and so you're not actually more open-minded uh, than, than anyone else who, who believes they have some access to the truth. And like, forgive me, but I think Jesus has more light than you. You know, um, even the, the major figures of the other religions, uh, none of them really have the, the boldness to say, I am the light. They, they're all saying that, uh, or I am the way. They, they say, I am a prophet and I know the way. And, and this is the way that you should follow. Only Jesus says, I am the way. I am the light. Right? O only he has the, you know, the, the confidence to say that about himself. And in him, what we've experienced, what Christians experience, is that light really does come into us. It really does illuminate us. It really does show us the, the world and, and guide us into it and, and, and work that preserving power into us. Right? If Jesus is the salt, salt has the, the power to pre preserve and prevent decay. Um, Jesus actually has a greater power than that. Salt is just a good illustration, but Jesus, he's killed, he's resurrected from the dead. He's able to take something that has decayed and make it whole again. Jesus can do more. He, he makes dead things and take them, uh, and, and make them alive. Right? Jesus can take a person who's spiritually dead, dead in their sins, hopeless, weighed down by guilt without any purpose, and he can, he can forgive that person. He can give them new life, the hope of eternal life. He can take all their guilt away from them, fill them with hope, give them a new purpose. Jesus dramatically changes people's lives in ways that, that nothing else does. 
There's, and there's so much that Jesus changes in you. There's so much that he changes in you and through you and the people and the world around you. Uh, Jesus can heal and renew and make whole relationships, right? He can bring the grace and the forgiveness and the reconciliation, the humility to repair and rebuild relationships. He heals and he renews our minds, right? He can give us hope for the future. He can, he can help us to trust him and rely and depend on him so that, so that our anxiety and our depression, right, those things, I'm not saying that, that all you need is, is more faith and then you never have to deal with those things ever again, but man, Jesus is such a powerful source of healing to, to our minds and our hearts. He can work redemption through us into the world around us to bring more peace and to bring order and to bring stability in ways that it's not without him. So with Jesus, it's not either you're, you're a pessimist or you're an optimist. It's, it's being realistic about how difficult the world is, but also being realistic about the ability Jesus has to bring change. Like if you don't believe things can change, you don't believe in Jesus. That's what he does. It's what his power does. That's our second point, that there is a salt and a light from outside the world that enters into it and can, can bring light and can bring restoration and healing. Now on to the third point. We can be salt and light when we are in Jesus, in right relationship with Jesus. Uh, when, when we make a decision, when you make a decision to put your faith in Jesus and you receive him as your savior, that light comes in and, and you're lit up, you're filled with his light, the salt comes in, you are forgiven and he starts to make you whole. But I just want to be real clear for a minute on what making that decision means because it might be different than what you think. Um, put, putting your faith in Jesus, that means putting all your confidence into him and his work on the cross for you, for your salvation, right? His, his atoning work on the cross to forgive your sins and deal with your guilt and make you righteous. All your confidence is in him. None of your confidence is in yourself. None of it, like, you know, why, why do I believe God loves me? Why do I believe God forgives me? The answer to that is never, well, you know, I go to church, and I read the Bible, and I pray, and I try to apply the teachings of Jesus to my life, and I try to be a good person, and I try to be forgiving, and you're just listing all things about yourself and all things that you do. No confidence in yourself, only confidence in Jesus and his work and his mercy. Right? The reason that God loves me and, for, and is able to forgive and embrace me, it's because of what Jesus did for me. That decision that to put your faith in Jesus like that, it requires an act of surrender. We call it repentance, where you let go of yourself, you let go of your life, you let go of all the things you're clinging on to so that you can instead hold on to Jesus and give your life to him. Jesus himself describes this decision and this act of, of uh, you know, re receiving his light and becoming one of his. He describes it as death to self. Matthew 16, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Right? Taking up your cross, that means going to your death. It means your old self is going to be put to death. You're going to become something new that Jesus makes you. 
You can have a new life. I'm sorry if anyone's ever sold you a version of Christianity where they said, you know, um, do, do you want God to make your life better? Do you want to be happier? Do you want him to, to bless you? Do you want to get into heaven? All you have to do is say yes to Jesus. It's that part right there that I hate the most. That all you have to do is say yes to Jesus. And, and if they're not telling you what saying yes to Jesus actually means, and you just make it seem like this easy thing, like, oh yeah, you just need to, just need to agree. But you don't have to change. That's not what saying yes to Jesus means. Right? It's, it's everything. It's dying to yourself. It's surrendering. It's putting all your confidence and hope in Jesus. That's what it means. And so maybe for some people, you, you think you said yes to Jesus, but you never actually did because you never actually knew what it meant. You never actually knew what, what that actually required. Making that decision, it's not a light decision, but it's also the best decision you could make. It's the best decision I ever made. Because when you make it the light of Jesus, the salt of Jesus, the power to heal you and make you whole and, and light up your life, that comes into you and you're changed. You're given hope. You, you're given uh, forgiveness. You, you're given purpose. All these incredible things that, that you don't have apart from Jesus in, in it. It's just so good. And it changes you. It's in that decision and in receiving that from Jesus that you yourself become the salt of the earth. And Jesus says something funny here. He says if salt loses its saltiness, you know, it's worthless and you throw it out. And, and it's a funny thing because, like, that's not what salt does. Like, salt doesn't lose its saltiness. And I've seen and I've looked into this, trust me, uh, people who, who try to come up with answers for like, oh, well, you know, uh, salt from the Dead Sea, it can lose its saltiness, and this is how, and this is what they did with it. Um, but there's not actually real strong evidence that that's the case. It seems more likely that Jesus is just saying something that's absurd. He's like, if water loses its wetness, like it can't, because it's just water. Like salt doesn't lose its saltiness, it wouldn't be salt. So what Jesus is saying is, you when the, the kingdom of God breaks into your life and you become a citizen of the kingdom, that's just what you are. If you don't have the saltiness, if you don't have the distinction, then you're not a citizen of the kingdom of God. It's the same thing with, with light, that you don't light the lamp and then put it under a basket because if you do that, it doesn't really have light, right? It's not really giving it out. Here's where this gets difficult for us. If a Christian is salt and light, and you have this power from Jesus in you that can uh, illuminate the darkness and, and enact this kind of preserving and healing power into the world, one of the things that means for you is that your life is going to expose areas of darkness and decay around you in the people around you. And some people are not going to be thrilled about that. Some people are going to feel, uh, they're going to feel threatened by that. They're going to get defensive about that, right? If the light of Jesus is showing itself through your life, and it, and it does, right? That's his point, that if it's actually in you, it's going to show itself. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be there. 
and you're living according to the truth of Jesus, you know, I think that he's connecting this with the Beatitudes, that like this is what your life looks like, and these are all the things that I'm making you to be, and it's so kind of distinct and different from the world around you. Uh, when you're living that way, and those things are present in your life, just by contrast and by the way that you live and the things that you don't do and the things you don't participate in, that's going to reveal things for what they are. It's going to reveal works of darkness for being works of darkness. That, that you know, your life is going to be able to reveal uh, dishonesty and gossip and racism and corruption and sexual sin uh, for, for what they really are. And it might make people uncomfortable because they, they kind of expect you to go along with it or to laugh about it or to talk about it and, and you're not going to involve yourself in it and, and this defensiveness gets triggered where they look at you and they go, what, do you think you're better than me? They go, oh, look, look at the holy person over here. I think he's better than the rest of us. Right? The, the, kind of, um, the kind of feeling or, or perspective that people are going to have at you because, just because they realize, well, there's this stuff in me and, and it's not in them or they don't think it's okay and, and it becomes this uncomfortable thing. And it's not that you think you're better right? We're sinners saved by grace. That's what I am. It's not that I think I'm better. It's just that Jesus changed me. Jesus put this light into me, and, and now I just don't like, I don't want to involve myself in that thing. I don't want to advance it or participate in it. In all kinds of ways, it's going to happen. It's going to show your, it, itself in the way that you handle criticism, in the way that you deal with pressure, in the way that you treat people, the way you treat people who are working under you. Your light that Jesus has given you will expose some darkness. Some people are going to hate that. Some people are going to be drawn to it. That's why Jesus says, let your light shine so that people will see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Here's a question for you. If you're a follower of Jesus and you've made that decision and you've been filled with his light, is your life doing that? Does your life show the contrast between the, the light of Christ and the decay and the darkness of the world? Or are you just kind of blending in? Are you the light of the world in Christ or are you the lamp under the basket? Are you the, the not salty salt that actually doesn't have any distinction or, or presence that's different from, from anything that's in this dark world that's falling apart? Is your life blending in or is there a marked distinction about it that comes from Jesus? It's one of the things that makes that decision to put your faith in Jesus, it puts so much weight in that decision because it does change your life. It does make certain things, it can make certain things more difficult. But it's not all difficult because, you know, salt is not just used as preservative, it's also used to flavor and to season and, and help people to enjoy the food that they're eating even more. Like, that's also what it means to be a Christian, or part of what it, the experience of being a Christian is going to do, that there are going to be people who are 
glorifying your Father in heaven because they see the good works in you and they get to experience and benefit from them. Right? Like, if you have the light of Christ and you have the, the preserving power of this salt that makes whole in you, there are going to be people who are glad that you're their neighbor. And they're going to be glad that they work with you and glad that you're in their, your, their family. They're going to be glad to know you because they see these things in you. They see the, the forgiveness in you, the love in you, the patience, the humility, the service. And they, they get to experience all these things in you, it, all these things that are coming from Jesus, even if they don't know Jesus. But they're going to be glad that they know you. You're going to be, bring joy into their lives because you're a Christian. Last thing that I want to say here is, uh, and I, I wonder if you noticed it in the metaphors that Jesus gives, um, and maybe not because we're Americans, and this is not the way that we tend to read it, but Jesus is not giving these metaphors primarily in like an individual way that's like just for you and just for your own life. It's actually aimed at the group because, you know, a single grain of salt can't do much by itself. It can't preserve anything and it doesn't flavor much. And, and same thing with the, 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 the light, the image that he gives us is a city that's on a hill, so a whole city that's filled with light on a dark night, and it's everything kind of working together. You have to be salt and light in your own life, that's true, but it's when we come together as a group and as a church and people see this, this whole group of people who are filled with the light of Christ, this whole group of people who have this, this salt of the earth in them, right? that's what really shows them who Jesus is. When, when they look at the church and they see the relationships in the church and the people together in the church, that this is, this is how they treat people, this is what they give their time to, this is how they work, this is how they create art, this is how they handle conflict, that's what's going to show them who Jesus is and the power that Jesus brings into our lives. Together as a church, we have an opportunity to show, like, this is what family is. This is what family can look like. This is what work can look like. This is what, what friendships can look like under the, the lordship of Jesus. Right? This is the light that he can bring into your life in the world. This is the healing he can bring into your life in the world. Has Jesus come into your life? Have you been filled with his light? If you haven't, I, I invite you to make that decision today. I mean, you might still be exploring. It's fine if you're exploring, but I invite you to think about making that decision today. Putting your hope in him. Surrendering your life to him. Letting his light come into you. Letting his power to heal and make whole come into you. Let me pray for us.